This podcast contains potentially sensitive topics and strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Trauma is, um, it's an old, it's a Greek word that means wound. Really, that's, it's, it's how were we wounded and how did we re- respond to those wounds that we received. I was one of those people who would look at people in the street and say, what the hell's wrong with you? I had a shitty childhood. And, and I'm here scraping along, so, you know, get your shit together. That hardness of heart um, comes from a place of lack of compassion for oneself. I think if we really scrape the surface of somebody that's not compassionate to someone else's pain, we'll find they're, they're probably not compassionate to themselves. When I was a kid growing up, nobody talked about mental illness, at least Openly, that is. There were the hushed talks about so-and-so's mom losing it and having to be committed to a psych ward, being taken away and put in a hospital somewhere. Or a friend's uncle who went off the deep end, now getting help with his breakdown. Whatever that meant. As a kid, it was always a mystery. Back then, if you or someone in your family was getting mental health help of any kind, Nobody talked about it. It was purposefully kept quiet in a tight circle of family and close friends. There was a big stigma around saying, you needed help. Today, thankfully, that is changing. Not only are there an increasing number of people seeking various forms of mental health help, just the idea of it is becoming comfortable and accepted. People are more open. They want to share and talk about what's going on in their life. It's commonplace to hear someone say, hey, I gotta run, I've gotta get to my therapy session. It does feel like we're living through a time where the stigma around mental illness is being dismantled. However, there is still a big hurdle in front of us. For those suffering with mental health issues, the available help is severely lacking. This is particularly, and I'll say also painfully true, for those struggling through homelessness. In a culture where we're still learning to understand and give bandwidth to those suffering on our streets, an added level of judgment is created when the housed community sees folks living outside navigating their mental health condition with their life on full display, unable to be hidden behind a closed door. The negative stereotype, which is centered on misunderstanding, is fueled by the visible symptoms of mental illness. If we discuss the issue of trauma, just one piece of the larger mental health spectrum, we know that the vast majority of folks living chronically homeless have been traumatized. Either trauma brought them into homelessness or living homelessness itself has brought trauma to them. That should alarm us. We're hoping that this episode will be part of an increasing awareness of bringing mental health help to those struggling through homelessness. We also hope that this conversation will provide useful and informative material for those looking to find ways to be in relationship with those living outside. Today, I'm very excited to welcome my dear friend Rebecca Demerol to this conversation. She wears many hats in her life, which I will add she does beautifully, bringing lived and studied expertise to the conversation. I'm going to let her tell you about all of that, about who she is. But first, 
I do want to share that I just finished her excellent book titled Nothing's for Nothing, Transformation Through Trauma. It is a collection of personal essays and reflections that I found to be profoundly insightful. I'm guessing you will too. You can find a link to her book on our website. And with that, let's jump in and meet Rebecca. I'm actually really excited to talk to you. I, um, you always say that. No, I don't always say that. Well, I am always excited. You're right. But I'm specifically very excited because I have this very high level of respect for you and the work that you do. And, and just you as a human um, means a lot to me to be able to have this conversation. So let's see where it goes. Oh, well, likewise. So um, I think maybe let's start by first. Can you just introduce yourself? Because I know you have a you have a... You do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And can you maybe just give a quick overview of who you are? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll start with what I do. Um, so I'm an acupuncturist and clinical counselor. And I've been doing the clinical counselor work for over 20 years and uh, acupuncture and Chinese medicine for the last 15, 16 years. I think both um, working as a, a healer, professional you know, healer in, in that regard in uh, Chinese medicine and the counseling, both those things are informed by uh, the trauma that I went through as a kid. And that seems like a funny thing to say, but I, I think <clears throat> my, my healing journey um, kind of led me to a place where I um, felt on solid enough ground and had gained enough insights that I wanted to share those with other people. As I work with people all these years, um, I find that there's so much that I see in other people's journeys and struggles that I've either been through myself or I'm still going through and healing. And so it's, it's kind of like um, vicariously I continue healing through helping other people. So, so yeah. I, that was going to be my question, which <laughs> seems obvious, right? But that yeah. you're actually, so often in life, we actually grow more when we're actually teaching or helping others. And, yeah. and I'm guessing that's true for your journey with regards to healing. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. And and the the people that that come to me, um, it just it always just feels like a gift, like, oh, you know, now this is being asked of me. Now I have to draw deeper into myself to find ways to help that person. And I always feel um, that I'm on this parallel journey with people. And uh, and it's yeah it's it's, it's beautiful. it really it really really is and it and it really helps me um, just continue to yeah. learn and grow. It's the uh, proverbial win win, right? Like you're helping people and you're also helping yourself. Yeah. In, in the process. And I'll share that with people too. Like if I if I'm working with, I mean, it, you know, if somebody's coming to you, um, you know, in a counseling kind of a capacity, you don't want to be disclosing a bunch about yourself, but. You know, if somebody, if I'm touched by something that somebody's telling me, or I, I can see their pain, I'll, I'll cry with them, mm -hmm. because that's just being a human. And uh, in there, there's healing too to yeah. to uh, feel like, um, yeah, being, there's that being empathy. vulnerable. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about like, what do I want to talk with Rebecca about? And when I think about the issue of homelessness and the disconnect that happens between the unhoused and the housed. And, and my own feelings of, you know, the closer you come, the more you feel, the more you feel, the more you act, that there's, that really the trick is to somehow get us to come closer, but that requires the ability to do so, right? Like you can't just 
push two people together. And I, and I wonder, like, if we could have a conversation about if someone says this living inside, for example, I really want to get involved. I really want to reach out and try to make a difference and be with those that are suffering through homelessness. What do they need to know? And, and so maybe we could talk a little bit about what do we need to know about the unhoused that are going through their own trauma? And then also on the other side, uh, maybe the second half of the conversation can be about what does that journey look like for helping others that are going through trauma? And, and what if they have their own trauma? What should they be doing? Well, you know um, that part of my history is growing up in a pretty traumatic, um, chaotic, violent household and leaving home when I was 13 and living on the streets and in and out of foster care and very sort of precarious lifestyle um, for all of my teen years and even into my 20s, very um, unstably housed. And so that also, you know, informs the the work that I do and what I care about. And, and yeah, um, folks that are housed, that are wanting, that are seeing, you know, first of all, noticing and choosing to notice uh, the suffering of, of folks that um, don't have a place to live and <clears throat> don't have clean clothes and don't have a bathroom and don't have any privacy and all of those things. And uh, and the suffering that, that uh, we witness through people just trying to get through those times and, and, you know, using drugs and, and um, having, uh, engaging in dangerous behaviors and, you know, risk-taking. Um, if somebody notices that and, and, and chooses to, um, you know, a- allow themselves to feel like, oh, yeah, this, this touches my heart and, and I might want to do something about it, I think right there is, is an amazing leap of faith. Because uh, so many times, um, folks on the street are used to just feeling invisible. And I remember that feeling, too, of just feeling invisible. And people walk by you, and they don't want to see the suffering. They don't want to feel uh, whatever that um, brings up for them. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the first step. <laughs> I, I want to stop and say, thank you for actually backing up before that point that I kind of started, because you're absolutely right. That's a, just getting to that place is a beautiful and amazing thing, right? For a human being to just open themselves to that. So yeah. I, yeah, that's worth celebrating. Yeah. Something, something's got to chip off the, the old, uh, you know, covering around the heart to be able to say, oh yeah, I see that. Mm. I see you, you're a human being, you know, and there's different layers of, of letting it in. So and then I think it's really important to uh, check in with oneself uh, about, um, and how do I feel? How do I feel being that close to to somebody who I see with that um, degree of suffering? You know, would I feel uh, more safe if I were in a certain kind of environment, a you know, well-lit street in the daytime versus at night? Versus with a woman, versus with a man. Are they sitting? Are they standing? What position am I in? All of that, I think, is really good to take into consideration so so that you're not stepping so far outside of your comfort zone that you feel unsafe. And then, uh, and then yeah, like you always say, you know, just, just engaging in some way, whether it's eye contact or saying hello, and just, is there, is there anything that I could do for you? You know, is there anything that that you need? 
And, uh, and I think it's a really nice thing to engage um, for a house person to engage with a, a, another group that may be able to give them more information and support and resources uh, to, to engage in, in ways that are helpful. Yeah, to keep uh, assuring that feeling of safety. Yeah. Because I think we all operate better when we feel we feel safe, like we're in our, our zone. Yeah. 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 And there may be lots of good reasons for uh, people to, you know, keep their distance and because, because they don't feel safe. Um, and, and it could be all in their head, but it's also, it could be old memories. It could be all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, just respecting how you feel and how you feel in that moment. And then, and then just seeing if you can get the heart to be engaged with the mind. This, it's like we, lately uh, people are talking about being dysregulated versus being regulated. And dysregulated, um, like we, maybe we see somebody on the street and they're yelling and screaming and their pants are half down and they seem to be you know on drugs and everything. Well, that's an extreme state of dysregulation because the person doesn't know how to control anything. And if we think of you know regulation, it's when it's when we have a sense of things being in alignment and that head, heart, and gut all being able to sort of operate together. That there's a yes, yes, and yes in my head, heart, and gut, and I know how I feel, and so I can engage in a way that feels authentic and also safe. Can you talk a little bit about um, what trauma does? To people. I mean, we're talking about trauma in lots of ways these days, yeah. right? Uh, if you're listening for it, it's everywhere. Right. But I think one of the things that happens for people that are housed and, and living in maybe much more structured lives, um, as opposed to the unstructure of living on the street, right. see something uh, unfold and they, they immediately make judgments and pull back and all the fears of the negative stereotype rush in. But that's a human being that's actually having their life unfold right out there in public and a lot of stuff's going on because of often because of trauma. Yeah. Can you give some insights into the types of things that person, the barriers and the struggles that that person is probably experiencing yeah. or can be experiencing? Yeah, and, and that's you know so interesting that they're going through all that right out in the open, whereas we can all go through all that, but we're inside our house, so it's not like we're just exposed to the world that they can judge us and say, you know, oh, God, what's Rebecca doing? You know, she's really, really seems to be dysregulated, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, so... <clears throat> what a privilege that is. Exactly. Yeah, and then and then you know when somebody's out in the open, you see you know everything just hanging out there. Um, you know, like you say, they can be judged, and they may very well be a sick person, definitely a dysregulated person, but not a bad person. Because I don't actually believe that there's anything as a bad person. Yeah. I just I just don't. Um, I believe that um, everybody. Everybody has worth, and nobody and nothing is beyond redemption. That's that's a core belief of mine. And you know, trauma trauma is um, it's an old it's a Greek word that means wound, hmm. and so really that's it's it's how were we wounded, and how did we re- respond to those wounds that we received? And you know, when we think of trauma, I think. These days, people think, well, you know, were they sexually abused as a child? And, you know, uh, were they beaten? Um, you know, all, all these kinds of things. It's not necessarily those things that always wound us deeply. It could just be 
that uh, a parent didn't pay attention to us in the way that we really needed as sensitive children. And so those wounds come from not just what happened, but it's it's how we responded to, how, how we um, adapted to the pain. And we all have different abilities. All have different abilities and all have different sensitivities too. And so what we're seeing when we're seeing hurt people is people that are um, have deep wounds that haven't been um, that haven't been soothed, yeah. and that have maybe um, lost the ability or never had it modeled to them how to soothe themselves, and so they look. You know, we I have looked for soothing in in other ways. You know, drugs and relationships and you know whatever yeah. whatever it took to to sort of make me feel soothed. Yeah. I've heard this a number of times, and and I'd be curious to hear your responses, that somebody that uh, is out on the street engaging in some activity, and a person might look at them and say, you know, why don't they just get a job, or why don't they just get their shit together, or pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, that type of conversation. And if I say something like, well, we don't know what happened to that person, right? And maybe they, maybe they were physically abused. And I've, I've gotten this response so many times that says, well, I was physically abused and I pulled myself up. And how, how do you respond to that? Well, I'll start by saying that I, I was one of those people who would look at people in the street and say, what the hell's wrong with you? I had a shitty childhood and, and I'm here scraping along. So, you know, get your shit together. That hardness of heart um, comes from a place of lack of compassion for oneself. Mm-hmm. I think if we really scrape the surface of somebody that's not compassionate to someone else's pain, we'll find they're, they're probably not compassionate to themselves. So when I started learning how to be loving to myself and, um, and sensitive to myself, I was much more able to be that way for other people. Going, going back to that direct connection with the person that's saying that and, and kind of looking, look, trying to uncover that belief and, and that hardness um, is maybe, maybe the way to go. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That actually really moved me forward just now. I, I really, I think that's a beautiful insight and, and it's a window into all of our lives, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if we're behaving in a certain way because someone's irritating us, you know, maybe the first direction that we should look at is our, in our own direction. And like, what are we, how, why is this upsetting me? Or why am I reacting this way? And what is it about myself? Um, one of the things that we used to say at Facing Homelessness all the time was uh, addressing homelessness has more to do with yourself than the homeless. Oh, yeah. And feels like what you just said speaks into that pretty clearly. It's this it's the spiritual part uh that that's kind of missing that self-inquiry that that um looking back into was what is it about me that's bothered by you. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And why? And why? And where did that come from? And then when we start to kind of, you know, and it's always like a big ball, a big knot inside it. So we just have to tease the threads apart a little bit and start to untangle that that ball yeah. of uh, that knot, and then we start to see, oh yeah, then we follow that thread back. Oh, that's that's where that came yeah. from. That's where that belief came from. 
uh, with that understanding, it feels difficult in those moments, those situational moments when somebody says, why, why don't they pick themselves up? And then you're the one hearing that. You can't in that moment say, well, that's because you don't love yourself. <laughs> right. right. It's such a nuanced, tender moment. Uh, and maybe one that can't be resolved in, in that moment. Right. Our hardened stance doesn't help the situation. Yeah. It's like I, I, I teach de-escalation and um, conflict resolution. And, you know, to resolve a potential escalated situation or a conflict situation, it only takes one person to, to de-escalate mm. something. So de- both sides don't have to de-escalate. Mm. Just one side mm. de-escalates. I'll share. I had a similar experience running the Facebook page. Is when somebody would make a terrible comment. If that comment was met with an equally aggressive comment back, it would just up it, and it was almost like hate needs hate to keep moving forward. Yeah. And if you meet it with something closer to love, that they might say one more time something bad. But if it's met one more time with love or, or kindness or understanding. It's amazing how that, you're absolutely right, how it dissipates. Yeah. What happens when someone's in the moment of their trauma? I think the, their window gets smaller, right? Mm-hmm. But can you, can you share a little bit for, for, the, for those listening that might not have those experiences? What's, what's going on when someone's in the moment of not feeling safe? When we don't feel safe, it's usually because we're locked in a time other than the present moment. Even if the present moment, you know, something actually unsafe is is happening, we just have to we have to be sensitive. And I think most most of the time, it's just giving space and giving uh, privacy to somebody if they're having a really hard time. Yeah. And then sometimes body language can tell us a lot too. Just just. You know, if somebody looks like uh, their head is down and they're cowering and I walk by them and they look up at me, I'm going to look at them too and say, you okay? You know, but, you know, if their body language is all spiky and 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 looks like they don't want anybody to be anywhere close to them, then I'll just kind of send them love from my, from my heart as I'm walking by. Yeah. And yeah. You know, one of the things I think is difficult uh, for all of us is when someone's having an episode or really struggling, it's easier to look and say, "Okay, that person's struggling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna act uh, in this beautiful, compassionate way." Mm. It, I find it much more difficult when someone's appearing to be completely normal. Maybe they're not even homeless. Maybe they're in a home, right? And but okay. they've got they've got their own thing going on, and then they and they say something that upsets us. We expect each other to be fully healthy, normal people, but that's not the case, right? Navigating the complexity of people that are outside or even people in your life that are inside, it's, uh, you know, hunting back to the overarching discussion of trauma. Yeah. Like it's, like we're not just either traumatized or not traumatized. We're some, we're some spectrum of... Yeah, well, and we need to take care of ourselves like all day long, you know. Um, I do these trauma trainings and and, um, self-care, you know, trainings for social service agencies and all different places. And, you know, people say, well, I'm burnt out in my job and, you know, and I, you know, just can't stand it anymore. And I come home and I yell at my husband and kick the cat and I and I don't want to I just want to sit in front of the TV with some ice cream and you know like that and 
It's because throughout the day, all through our lives, we need to um, have that self-awareness and self-inquiry and and keep breathing, keep taking care of ourselves so that we're able to respond in in healthy, engaged ways rather than coming from the fight or flight, you know, as soon as I'm triggered, I'm going to, I'm gather, I feel like I want to attack you or run from you, yeah. you know, or, or the, what they call the dorsal vagal response, which is just to kind of cower and, and hide, you know, under a blanket with a haagen in front of the TV. Our home base, we would hope we would grow into is more of what is called the ventral vagal response when I'm talking about polyvagal theory here. And, and that's the ability to connect with one another on in real time. And that takes that takes some work. We have a lot, we don't have a lot of good modeling of that from our politi- political figures or anywhere in the media. We really don't have a lot of modeling of authenticity and, uh, and good self-care. And so we need to cultivate that so that we're able to respond to one another in compassionate, you know, just real and authentic ways. Yeah. What I love about what you just said is we tend to think about the moment as where the work has to be done. Mm-hmm. Like I've got to, like something happens and then I say to myself, I need to be compassionate or I need to, I need to respond beautifully or I need to respond lovingly. But what you're telling me is that actually we need to be doing the work all the time yeah. so that we can create the bandwidth for when those moments yeah, good show up. Yeah. That we're now we're, we're flexible and stretched enough because we've been practiced with it. Yeah, yeah, just practicing it all the time. Yeah. yeah. Rather than, you know, go, go, go into this burnout phase of work and then, so I need a vacation, you know, you know, or I better do a self-care workshop or I don't have time for meditation or, you know, I squeezed in some yoga, you know, on my lunch break and stuff. It's like we we need yeah. more than that. Yeah. You know, society is, is squeezing us to a point where um, we've forgotten how to care for ourselves and forgotten how to engage with one another and forgotten how to make the, there be enough housing and support for people that, yeah. that can't afford it. Even just basic needs. Just basic needs, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a crazy world. And so it, it comes back to that, just that spiritual aspect of, of caring for ourselves yeah. is how we care for one another. I think there are things too, Rebecca, that are, are not really part of the conversation in homelessness uh, that I hear, right? Like you probably do because you're in the middle of it. But the general conversation is still, uh, when we talk about homelessness, we talk about those people over there. Yeah. And we talk about like, how, how are we going to do a number of things either to them or for them? Like, yeah. how are we going to fix them? How are we going to house them? How are we going to get them off drugs? But the conversation typically doesn't involve and what is my part in all that or how do, how am I contributing or how can how can my life actually move forward in a way that would be better for society um, yeah I think we're missing that mark and when it even is about what is my part we we tend to just ask what can I do for them again as opposed to what can I do for me like how can I actually be how can I create that bandwidth that you were just mm-hmm. talking about so that I am you know, a more beautiful human being yeah. to be in service to. People. And we need both those things, right? We yeah. need, how can, how can I help? And what's going on in me as I consider that? And, and what, what is the special way that I can give? And, and, 
and what changes in me as I give and what changes in me even as I consider to to give and to open my heart more. So all of that um, is where we become altered and and then that alters the relationship and that alters the relationships around us and yeah, yeah it just changes everything. It does. It, and also, I think you talked about this earlier when we weren't recording, but talking about modeling, like how important that is, like modeling good behavior and you know, people people see the things that you're doing in life and that affects them. I know it affects me, right? So I think that's a powerful thing about this equation of how do we address homelessness is we we try to healthfully healthfully model what that looks like. Yeah. And it's not always easy and it's not always and it's not a linear process either. I have my ups and downs. I have my times where I get really triggered by being around a, you know, certain individual at a certain time, you know, just, you know, it it reminds me of, um, of things that have happened to me and on the street and, and in my youth. And, and so then that tells me I need to, um, look deeper inside and process that stuff. And, and that's the gift. Yep. Actually, it, it's that's the gift. That's the shining the light on it. Yeah, yeah. And that's also the hard part, too. Yeah. So, yeah, the diamond doesn't get to be a diamond without some pressure, as right. they say, right? So, <laughs> How about, you wrote a book. How about Tell Me About It? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's called Nothing's for Nothing, uh, Transformation Through Trauma. And it is a memoir, and and it's uh, just about um, everything that's happened to me <laughs> thus far in life. Um, little anecdotal stories. Um, so um, there's kind of three sections to it, and and just looking at kind of childhood and midlife, and then later on, um, I dedicated it to my mom who left when I was three years old, and I didn't see uh, again till I was uh, 12 years old. So big part of my childhood she was gone from my life we had a really difficult relationship and and uh, did a lot of healing at the end um you know, she passed away um about 10 years ago now and um yeah it it's, came out of the two of you talking for three years yeah 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 mom had a stroke uh, when she was 85 and um and our, we still had this really you know terrible relationship a lot of resentment um from especially me but um you know as a kid um I was homeless for all my teen years and and um mom was living in Vancouver where I grew up too and and at one point my social worker was like can't you go live with your mom you know we had you in foster care and on the streets and everything like can you so we, we tried that but um mom I cramped her style and so I was 15 at the time and after about six weeks she kicked me back out again so you know I was I was just it was pretty perilous there on the streets and I had a a lot of really really tough and dangerous times and so later on in life you know when I got on my feet and was working as a paramedic for BC Ambulance um, you know I, I had a lot of resentment towards mom and and um at the end, you know, having gone through a lot of uh, a lot of work myself, and brought Mum to Victoria, where I was living, and had her in an extended care facility. She she'd had a stroke and was paralyzed on half her body, and and uh, she was being really cruel to me. and And I was just kind of visiting her daily and ha- having her um, be really abusive to me. She was very angry, and and um, 
there was a lot a lot of pain. I could see the pain, but I also had a lot of pain anger myself and and we just kind of we just kind of finished up um by uh letting all that go. Yeah, I, I won't spoil it because you had to hear the story in the book and yeah. I make you read the book. But basically you hung in there. I hung in there with her and we, we found a way to to get through it all. And it's uh, probably the most profound thing that's ever happened to me in my life is to to only carry love for her. And it's n- nothing to do with my thinking, my all my beliefs that I had about how she ruined my life and didn't love me and, and uh, never did love me. All that just disappeared. I have no explanation for it except that it's grace. Mm. It's just it was pure grace, mm. and um, and I just have nothing but love for her. I'm really happy for you. I mean, I, that's beautiful. Thank you. Cause, what? Because it's I'm, I'm almost done with the book, but <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of sh- there's a lot of shit. Well, <laughs> it's a burden to carry uh, resentment. It's a burden to carry a, a grudge. Yeah. So I for yeah. Yeah, you think you're hurting the other person, but you're hurting yourself. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. So there's that, and and you know, my, the book is full of uh, all my hard won insights, all my um, Chinese medicine kind of perspectives. I've thrown that into. I was I was blessed to have done some work with uh, Dr. Gabor Mate. He wrote the foreword for it, so we'll just put a little plug in there for that. And and um, and he's become a, a good friend and uh, and a mentor, and I. I certainly um, just, uh, he, he's really helped me a lot too. Yeah, part of the journey. Part of the journey. Why did you write the book? Hmm. I just started writing a blog actually, and I told myself I'm going to sit down and write uh, a blog post every day for a year. So I just did that. And, uh, and I said to, uh, Gabor's the one who I said to him, I said, I don't know, I got this blog post. I got like, I don't know, 80,000 words or something. And he goes, that's a book. And when I heard that, I was like, bing, bing. <laughs> exactly, bing. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so I just started piecing it together and made it in a roughly chronological, it was not in any kind of chronological order. It was just these stories, just these these memories, out. little snapshots that, that came up and I just kind of, you know, blurt them out on the page and, and yeah. I th- what I found is that they, uh, because of your, I think your genuine honesty and vulnerability in sharing, I feel like it allows the reader to kind of like honestly think about their own life and and access it. And I think it's because of how open you are in in the way you share. Um, thank you. That's the whole idea. But yeah, yeah thank you. As, I, I think you. It's very beautiful in that in that way. Um, there's one scene that that. I paused that for quite a while, and that was, um, and and it's because of what you said earlier about um, uh, bandwidth, but also it ties bandwidth for being ready for situations, which creates awareness in yourself about how to move forward. And so often, because it's a difficult road to navigate, with you know jumping into the arena or the pool of homelessness and trying to be be there with people in whatever fashion you want, that so often you're you're just missing it and you're and you're you know you can even create unintended consequences and you have to kind of be okay with that and and be able to move through it and that scene where you convince your mom to bring the television to your brother and and then get and then it just just it just did not work as you had imagined and i i think it's an important piece to share because that's also the truth of trying to be helpful is 
that mistakes come along with it. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? I mean, yeah, yeah, that story. Um, my my brother Michael, I, I can say his real name Robert because actually Robert passed away, and and I didn't want to use his real name um, when he was still alive, but he passed away last year, and um, I was living in Vancouver. Uh, I bumped into him on the street and discovered he was living just a couple blocks away from me. And, you know, we'd, he was four years older. We'd grown up in this, this terrible, violent uh, household where he was sexually abused. And, and uh, I, to my memory, was not sexually abused. But my brother would take out his anger um, on me. So I was beaten daily by him. He'd just sit on my chest and punch me in the face. And, and uh, yeah, lots, lots of violence there. And uh, so when I found out he was just living close by, I was just like, I was scared in a way, but I also know, knew that he and mom were trying to um, trying to reconcile some sort of relationship because, you know, he was he was about six when mom left and I was younger, I was three. And and for him, he's, he that he was his mummy, you yeah. know, I mean, that was being torn away like that, I think, was even more traumatic for him than it was for me. And uh, I don't know why I'm saying mummy instead of mum, but anyways, <laughs> he, um, I said to mum, well, you know, Robert lives just like a few blocks away from me. And um, I was talking to him and asking him about, you know, what are you watching on TV? And he doesn't have a TV. And I said, you know, mum, you were saying that you had this TV you wanted to get rid of. Why don't you just give Robert the TV? And she's like, oh, I, I don't know about that. And I was like, no, I convinced her this is the thing to do. And mom didn't have a car. So I said, okay, just put it in the taxi and just, you know, get over there and, and then I'll, I'll meet you there. And so she still, she in her gut didn't want to. Um, and they hadn't talked. And they hadn't talked. For yeah, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So there was this, you know, there was this sort of reconciliation. It was kind of, I think they might've talked on the phone, but you know, really there wasn't, you know, any big reconciliation with the two of them. And so anyways, I, I had <laughs> convinced mom, you know, get the damn TV out of the car and we'll struggle it up the walk and we'll knock on the door and, you know, and my brother answers. And this is a man that's been through hell, right? And now he's in his early thirties. Um, He's extremely um, private and doesn't like contact and, and has been invaded his whole life. And so here we are at his door. Here's your mom and here's your TV. And, and he's just standing there with his mouth hanging open. And I'm like, here's the TV. Here's your mom. Like, I fixed everything, didn't I? You know, say thank you. And, and basically, he just slams the door. And and poor mom, I mean, you know, yeah. it still makes me cry. Poor mom, you know, it it was hard enough um, to go against her own gut instincts and to go there in the first place, and to know that she had hurt him once again, and and yeah, and I and I was crushed too because what I really wanted was for them to just love each other, and and I'd try to force, I'd tried to force something. That didn't work, yeah. and um, yeah. And then the next morning, there's the TV out on the walk. I walk by, and there's a sign on to take it, you know. <laughs> and um, yeah. yeah, free, take yeah. it away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, to Mum's credit, she didn't give up on him. She she kept trying to have a relationship with him, and and I think that um, 
that was the best that it could be. Um, so th- a lesson. I learned a big lesson yeah. there about, about forcing something and trying to impose my will upon a situation in a way that wasn't sensitive to the situation or the people. Yeah. Check in with, with yourself about, does this feel right? Yeah. And, and is this what they're actually wanting or is this something I need? Right, because I knew in my guts that it wasn't right the whole time, but I'm I at that point in my life, and I still see this sometimes that I override my own gut instincts because that's what you have to do when you're a kid in a traumatic situation. When when abuse is happening, you ha- you have to it, oh. you have to find a way of of almost rising above it by it's this isn't happening right now, so I'm going to ignore my gut instincts that that my father is doing that or my brother is doing that. This can't be happening. So it's it's a, a pattern of ignoring wow. one's gut instincts. I've never understood that because, you know, what we're always taught is listen to your listen to your heart, listen to your body, you know, and and right. and that's interesting to to hear that trauma can move you out of that and into your into your head to find the rationalization or the or the explanation. But but you're actually disconnecting from yeah. from that very important centering, and that is basically what PTSD is. You know, it, it's it's a it's a normal response to an abnormal situation. So yeah, we just kind of we just kind of remove ourselves from it. But when that becomes habitual, when it becomes something that we don't have a choice over, then then it. We, we don't know how to respond properly in a situation when we really need to. Yeah. So you had to learn to trust your gut again. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, is that the work of healing? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. To know the difference between what feels like yes and what feels like no. And, and then to um, trust, trust those things. Yeah. And sometimes it's not yes or no. Sometimes it's maybe or it's I don't yeah. know. And part that's yes okay and part too. No. <laughs> yeah, and and the, so it's like, oh, I need more time. I need more information. I need I need more checking in with myself in order to have some some more clarity in this yeah. situation. Um, I want to. There's a couple things here I want to like just read. Um, a couple little quotes that I wrote down, and I I maybe you wouldn't have any more to say about it than just what I'm reading, and that's that's good too. But if you have more to share on it, I think they're. They're just, they struck me as being very important things, um, simple but important. Um, the first one is, uh, on page 62, you write, uh, we always remember how someone makes us feel. And I, I, like, I really find that so important because, um, well, one is I find it to be true. Like, that's, that's how I, in my, even in my brain of my Rolodex of people, I, it's almost the first thing that, that's that I identify with is how did they make me feel? How did you know? How do I feel when I'm with them? And um, can you? I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Why is that important for you? Why did you write that? I I smile when I think of this memory, even though it's kind of a a painful memory. And that that quote that you just read came from the story uh, where uh, my dad is painting the front porch and. I um, step out into the front porch and um, slide into the paint and just, you know, go down the stairs. The paint can tips over, just makes a big mess, and I'm, I'm covered in paint. 
And I'm just a little kid, you know, maybe six or seven years old. And I'm figuring, because my dad's got this temper, you know, my dad, you know, often would explode about things. And um, in this case, like, I'm, I'm scared, oh, I've, I've made a mess and, and, and I wrecked everything. And, and so I'm crying already. And my dad just, you know, really gently um, brings me into the kitchen and gets some um, paint thinner or paint remover, whatever, out of the, the cupboard and, and just starts taking it off my leg. And, and he's not mad. And I'm kind of amazed that he's not mad. And he's just being, like, gentle with me, like somehow just really compassionate and gentle. And I just, it's a memory that I have that, that makes me love him in spite of all of the other stuff because it, it kind of, that love cut through a lot of the, a lot of the hard stuff. Yeah. And, um, and, and I wonder in retrospect, and, and I reflect on this in the book, where did he learn that gentleness? Where did that gentleness come from? You know, was it just inspired by the fact that he had a scared little girl who was his daughter in front of him? And, um, yeah, just the, the beauty of that moment um, yeah. stuck to me. You, you know, it, when you share it that way, it makes me think about an earlier conversation that we had around um, not seeing people for just the one thing that, that affected you, to know that they have many other sides. So here's a father that clearly sexually abusing your your brother and and having other components in his in in his life that dramatically affected you but yet you were still at, in retrospect now looking at all of that and saying but he also had some beautiful sides to him and that to remember that we all are made up of parts and pieces of good and bad yes well and it's not whitewashing you know and and it's not um it's not canonizing somebody for for you know all the good that they do, and so you're forgetting all the bad. It's it's a broader. It's just widening the window. It's just broadening the view and seeing this person, my dad, as somebody who who held uh, multitudes within him. Yeah. And um, yeah, just like we all do, just like we all do. like every one of us. Every one of and us. And then I, I would think that you would you would say this that that um, and then it's up to us. To which of those that we are, you know, letting up impact us, you know, or maybe I'm not saying that correctly. Uh, that that we're, if we're open to all of it, then we get to choose which of those we're actually bringing close to us. Yeah. Is that? Yeah, yeah. Or you know, or or do we broaden our capacity to just take it, take it all in? And um, I think that's the true mm. challenge of of humanity is to you know, for every person to take in every person and every nation to take in every nation and et cetera, et cetera. And we're all so compartmentalized yeah. and, and, and so narrow in what we'll accept of one another um, that that's, that's our real challenge in humanity is to, is to broaden, yeah. broaden our ability. Yeah. Yeah. If only. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on it. We're working on it. <laughs> um, okay. Um, another quick one. You wrote... Uh, when we, and this is page 122, I can also go to it if you want me to jog the memory, but when we experience trauma, it often changes us because we are laid bare down to the things that matter most. And 
I, that for me speaks into these times when, you know, I'll, I'll start to talk about so much beauty that I see in people that are outside. And when I do it, I, I have to be quick to say I don't want to romanticize it. Like, like it's like something you wouldn't wish on anybody, but because of it, this other beautiful thing happened. And do you feel that way about it? First of all, is that what, what are you saying here? And how do you feel about that comment that these tragic things that do happen to us also end up birthing unbelievably beautiful things in people? Yeah, well, I think just stepping back to what you said that, you know, you don't want to romanticize, but you do see the beauty because that's the eyes that you're looking for, through, right? I mean, that's just part of Rex. That's just part of how you are. And, um, yeah, kind of the, the deep stability of, of yourself allows you to, to see more of that. You're looking through that lens anyways, more often, I think, than, than many people <clears throat> might be looking through a much harsher lens. And I know for me that, um, and I think this is true of, of everybody that, that we see with, that when somebody is struggling and the struggle really strips something away from us, then we really we're left with whatever whatever whoever we are is is the most sort of basic authentic part of us and that's kind of what i have felt over the years is that nothing can really hurt me because i've already already felt that and already have um just gotten down to a real basic place yeah has it reduced fear in your life because of it yeah, yes, and and I think um, I go through phases of, of getting triggered too. Yeah, and, um, and brought back into it. <clears throat> being brought back into it. And I think it's just the proverbial onion, you know, of just the layers of, of healing. And how I gauge, partly how I gauge my own healing is uh, noticing, uh, back to the analogy of the wound, that it doesn't hurt as much. It doesn't hurt as often. Um, it um, is not hurt as easily, and um, and whatever scar has formed over it is is starting to dissipate, so that it's becoming more uh, homogenous yeah. with with the rest of me. So it it becomes integrated. Yeah. There's that word integrated. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like one day it's it's all gone. Mm, right. But you're learning. To, to to live with it and and to actually incorporate or integrate. Yeah. yeah, and the healing of course is not an event. It's a it's yeah. a process. Yeah. <laughs> like everything. <laughs> like everything is, right? Okay, here's another one. Okay. Um, seeing someone without projecting what we believe about them is a learned skill. And then you also just a little bit after wrote, you know, the pain or isolation of not being seen. Yeah. Right? Kind of both sides of that, right? Like what we do to people by projecting our own belief of who they are and then the result of actually that projection is keeping them from feeling seeing what they're what they're feeling is your projection but not actually yeah being seen well and that's the beauty of just say hello you know <laughs> right isn't it just um for for a moment giving your time and attention, those are our, our precious commodities in life, our time and attention, and giving time and attention 
to somebody who has felt invisible can change, can just bring some light into that, that dark, you know, that dark cavern of belief that I don't matter and that nobody's ever going to help me. And that's what cynicism is. Cynicism is uh, crushed hope, Mm. you know, so we become cynical that, yeah, it's never going to get better. Like I, nothing, nothing ever works anyways, you know, why should I believe that? I mean, that's basically what's happening in America right now is there's this intense cynicism. We see it in our political figures, right? And so, yeah, just one moment to let some of that cynicism uh, dissipate for somebody by engaging in a real authentic yeah. way and giving time and attention. Yeah, I, uh, I am visible. Somebody actually saw me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and enough moments like that happen, I think it, it does make a difference. Yeah. Like, what do you think the the biggest growth for you was in writing this book? And I know writing... Is a is a huge uh, entry point into healing. I mean, writing is really cathartic and and uh, and telling. But like, what like what do you do you have a takeaway from writing this book when it was all said and done and you and you reflect on it? Like, what was the growth that came out of it for you? I think it was it was uh, giving myself the time and attention to really look at my life and to look at my experiences and to um, stand back and and have that perspective. I felt very, um, I, think I felt like I'd really nurtured myself. And sometimes it was hard. Sometimes, you know, a lot would come up as I was sort of reliving some of these experiences. And but still I, does, right? Like even just sure. retelling the TV story yeah. kind of like brought a lot of emotions Yeah, up. but in a healing way, right? It's just like it, just peeling away, peeling away, shedding, shedding the skin, um, you know, letting the dust settle into the the clear water so that I can see all the way through, and and yeah, I just feel really proud. Yeah, <laughs> I feel really, really I'm, proud. I'm genuinely happy for you. Thank you. I really am, and it's a beautiful book. Um, Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah, I'm glad. I, I'm glad that you you shared it with me. Oh, well, coming from you, that's like a, a huge compliment because I just love you and and admire you and yeah. yeah. Love, Love you a lot, you, Rebecca. <laughs> Thank okay. you. All right. Um, I think that was beautiful, and um, I want to say thank you. Oh, genuinely. thanks, Rex. Yeah. yeah. You Know Me Now is produced, written, and edited by Tomas Bernatsky and me, Rex Holbein. We would like to give a heartfelt thanks to Rebecca for taking the time to speak with us. You Know Me Now has a Facebook and Instagram page where you can join in on the conversation. We also have a website at www.youknowmenow.com where you can see photos of Rebecca as well as read other stories of folks we feel you should get to know. Thanks as always for listening.